0: Sermon text today is 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14. Hear now the word of the Lord Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. This ends our passage for today. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you now for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to open it up and learn from it. Lord, we ask now that your spirit would reveal your word to us. Open up our eyes and ears, our hearts and our minds, that we would see, hear, understand and receive your word, and that it would bear fruit in us, that we would be made more into your likeness. Lord, get me out of the way this morning, and may it be Christ who receives all the glory in what is done here. We pray in his name. Amen. So we're continuing our summer series entitled Missio Dei, which is the mission of God. The Lord has promised to accomplish certain things in the world through Christ. Namely, the proclamation of the gospel throughout the earth, and to make a people out of every tribe, tongue, and nation, that is to build the church. And the end result being the redemption of the world, Christ having subdued all of his enemies with permanent peace and justice under his reign. Now in this, God uses means. He doesn't just decree kingdom built and then have it spontaneously happen. He is all powerful and sovereign, so he could have done it that way, but he did not. He has chosen to involve us, his redeemed people, in the process of building his kingdom in the midst of his enemies. And so, as we endeavor to work out this task, we need help, we need instruction, we need correction, we need encouragement from the word. Pastors Riley and Josh have worked through a number of sermons on various church topics about the what and the how of corporate worship, church membership, the ordinances, dealing with persecution, and so on, and there's a few more topical sermons coming. If you've missed any of those sermons, I encourage you to find them online and get caught up on them. In all of these sermons, you will notice that we have demonstrated that our behavior as Christians flows out of who we are as redeemed people. As Christian men and women, those living by faith in the strength of the Holy Spirit, our obedience to the scriptures and our desire to please God is a direct result of being reconciled to him through Christ. How we are to live is inseparably linked to who God made us to be. And so for the next two weeks, Lord willing, I'm going to uh, I'm going to work on these two sermons. I'm going to consider the foundational topic of gender in the beginning, God created our first parents, Adam and Eve, male and female, he created them. So it should be no surprise then that there will be two and only two very different sermons on the topic, one for each gender that actually exists. And because God started with a man, I too will start with a men this morning. So there is a need in the church to define all things biblically. The scriptures alone are the sole authoritative rule for faith and practice. God is the creator and definer of all things. We are made in his image, and if we would image him well, we must learn and know from him what it means to be a man. There's no shortage of competing voices in the world telling us who we are, who we should be, telling us that gender itself is just a social construct that we can play with and redefine any way we want. But we are not at liberty to define ourselves, nor should the world have any say in the matter. We belong to God in Christ. Our imaging Him as He defines us will bring Him the most glory and us the most joy and fruitfulness and peace as we live out the Christian life. And so, my aim this morning is to give us some very practical exhortations and applications from Scripture, hopefully, that we can all make use of. And so, let's begin. And I'll be using five points this morning just for the sake of note taking, maybe. And so, some of the categories are going to run into each other, but there will be five general points. Point number one from the text, be watchful, be observant, be vigilant, pay attention. Now in the context of our passage, the Apostle Paul was writing to the elders of the Corinthian church, which had its share of problems. They had fallen into a number of errors. There were divisions and infighting. There was sexual sin rampant in the church. There was disorder in their worship services, misuse of spiritual gifts, All kinds of problems that stemmed from men and the leaders in particular failing to be vigilant, failing to be watchful. Now, men are sometimes ridiculed for not being observant, not noticing the obvious. You come home from work and your wife has changed your hair a little bit or maybe redecorated a room and you fail to to notice. And that happens. But it's not as though we as men are incapable of being observant. We're just observant in some of the wrong areas. <clears throat> some guys can look at a golf swing, for an example, and, and tell you immediately what's wrong with it. Or they can see a car drive by and tell you the make, model, horsepower, ownership, history, serial number, all that stuff. Now, <clears throat> well, maybe that's a bit of an exaggeration, but the point is that men are observant. We do pay attention, but just not always to helpful things. For the elders of the Corinthian church, they had failed to notice some of the major problems that had crept into the local congregation which is why Paul spends basically this whole letter bringing it to their attention. Now for us, as the leaders of our homes, as fathers and husbands, are we watchful over the well-being of our wives and children? Are we taking notice of their needs, physical, emotional, and spiritual? Husbands, we are tasked with protecting our wives, and that begins with being aware of potential threats. So my question is, what are some of those threats? Well, let's start with doctrine, just like the Corinthian church. Are you aware of the teaching that's finding its way into your home? Through books, television, the internet? We have to be very deliberate these days to protect ourselves from false teaching. There's a lot of so-called Christian material out there that is unbiblical and dangerous. So if your family is in the habit of having contemporary Christian radio on in the house or in the car, or podcasts or television, you're going to have to be very diligent to filter what you're hearing. Christian books are the same. You can't just grab a book off the shelf in a Christian bookstore and trust what you're reading. You have to be discerning. You have to be vigilant. Men, it's our job to watch over the teaching that comes into our homes. It's our job to train up our children in the way they should go. Again, this is why we talk about family worship so much at GCC. Men, we need to take responsibility for the spiritual nourishment of our families. And if you feel ill-equipped to do so, you don't feel like you're You can handle that task. Take heart, because I think we all feel that way to some degree. You can make use of our church library, where the books have been carefully selected. And if you're looking for a book on a certain topic, for home devotions or whatever it is, talk to one of the elders, and we can direct you to uh, reliable resources that are 100% heresy-free. Another area that we need to be watchful over, I think, as, as men, leaders in the family, is materialism. And I mean our materialism as as men, your wife's materialism, your children's materialism. Our fallen hearts are very easily drawn into dissatisfaction. We actually talked about it in Sunday school this morning, how easily we begin to grumble over things that we don't like. God gave us the tenth commandment, you shall not covet, to protect us from what I would call a gateway sin. Covetousness, envy in our hearts, is what often leads to more destructive sins. Sins that can have a disastrous effect on our testimonies, our marriage, and our families. For men, one symptom of envy is often an unhealthy imbalance between work and home life. Chasing after more money in an attempt to keep up with the neighbors. Now maybe your motives started out good. Maybe you wanted to provide things for your kids that you didn't have growing up. But be careful because it can very quickly become about your ego and not what's best for them. Obviously, there are going to be times and maybe seasons when overtime at work is necessary, but there are also times when we need to say no um, to extra work for the good of our families, to maintain a good balance with our families. Also, the advent of social media has really encouraged covetousness and discontentment in our day. We can scroll through endlessly other people's feeds as they show off their unaffordable homes or seemingly flawless families or unattainable physiques. Um, photoshopped as they may be, it doesn't help us to be content with what we have. It doesn't help us lead our families according to their particular needs. And more often than not, social media is a hindrance to the the stability and security of our families and not a help. So we need to use it very wisely. And that leads me to one other major area that we as men need to be watchful over. And that is our purity. This goes out to all men here, young, old, and in between. The number one way that marriages, families, and testimonies are destroyed is sexual sin. It was a major problem in the Corinthian church. Sexual sin, porneia, was being tolerated to the point of being normal, even celebrated. In that time, in that culture, culture, sexual promiscuity, adultery, prostitution were all rampant. The sanctity of marriage was not valued in society and that influence had wormed its way into their church. God's people, people who had been cleansed by Christ, set apart for holiness, were not falling back into sins that they had known before. These sins were, no doubt, readily available and perhaps a daily temptation. Now that sounds a lot like our day and our culture. Now in our part of the country, rural Manitoba, some things are not as accessible as they are in the cities, and I'm very thankful for that. But most of us carry around a device that within seconds can give us access to limitless filth. Guys, there is no sin more devastating to your witness, more destructive to your marriage, more shattering to your wife than that of adultery, physical or virtual. So, are you being vigilant to guard your eyes, your mind, and your affections? Are you keeping your promise to your wife and to the Lord to be faithful to her alone and forsake all others? Are you giving in to sin that you want your own sons to be free of? Are you honoring women as you want your own daughters to be honored? If not, take steps now to be vigilant. Shore up your defenses and seal off the cracks. Be sober-minded, be clear-headed, be watchful. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says, Our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Remember, King David was a man after God's own heart, But his lack of vigilance led to a great sin with Bathsheba and massive consequences for his family and his nation. So flee from sexual sin. Flee from from situations that lead you into temptation. How can a young man keep his way pure? Psalm 119, verse 9, by guarding it according to God's word, by reading the scriptures, meditating on them, memorizing them. And then pray. Ask God for help and he will give it. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Colossians 4 verse 2. Be watchful in prayer with thanksgiving. If we're busy praying, we won't be sinning. And if you were to ask husbands, do you pray for your wife and for your children, my guess would be that most of us would answer, not as much as I should. And one of the graces of God is that he makes it more difficult to sin against the people we pray for. So pray regularly for your wife and your children. Young single men... It might sound strange, but pray for your future wife. Ask the Lord to set apart a godly woman that can help you serve him, and then pray that he'll make you into the, to a man that's worthy of her. There's no, there's no room for pride here in this battle, guys. If you are trapped in sexual sin, confess it to God, and then talk to someone. Talk to your dad. Talk to another mature Christian man. You might think that he can't relate, but he can. No sin has seized you but that which is common to man. Find someone who can hold you accountable and teach you how to be watchful and vigilant in the Lord. All right, point number two, and this is straight from the text. Stand firm in the faith. Be steadfast, be immovable, be dedicated to Christ. It has been well said that those who stand for nothing will fall for anything. And as Christian men, we need to stand firm in the faith. We need to be anchored in Christ. In sailing terms, which Scripture uses, if you want to prevent your boat from drifting off, you anchor it to the shore. The shore doesn't move. If you're at sea, you anchor your ship to the seabed. The seabed doesn't move. Hebrews 6 describes Christ's work on our behalf as our sure and steady anchor. God's promises to us in Christ are immovable unchangeable, Christ doesn't move. So brothers, we need to be solid and stable in him. We need to work towards steadfastness, to mature manhood, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 4, to the stature and fullness of Christ, that we wouldn't be tossed around by the waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine, that we wouldn't be led astray by evil men and their deceitful schemes. And so what kind of deceitful schemes do we need to be on the lookout for and stand firm against? Well, first of all, quite simply, our enemy would have us deny Christ. The world would try to convince us by clever arguments or so-called science that the Bible is irrelevant or untrustworthy, that the Genesis account is figurative, that God's miracles are fantasy and that Jesus didn't exist historically. Their goal is to undercut our faith at the root but if that doesn't work, and ultimately that won't work on the elect of God, because we are anchored in Christ, but the enemy doesn't stop there. The enemy will settle for rendering us unfruitful and ineffective. The enemy will work us having, work at us denying our faith functionally. The enemy, I'll say it again, the enemy will work at having us deny our faith functionally. That is, we can believe what we want in our minds, in our hearts, and even in our homes, But keep your faith quiet, keep it private, keep Christ out of the workplace, out of the government, out of the public square. If you don't, you'll be shamed or reprimanded for violating community standards. The persecution most prevalent in our day, in our part of the world, is persecution by public pressure. Well here we need to stand firm. We can't give up that ground. Christ is Lord over all, private and public. In him we live and move and have our being. As Abraham Kuyper is known for saying, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, mine. And so for us to relegate Christ to the church service and to private devotions is to deny our Lord and Savior what is rightfully his. Now, the Protestant Reformation brought with it many corrections to church doctrine and practice, And one of those corrections was in regards to the theology of vocation, the theology of work. The reformers, including Luther and Calvin, taught that vocational work, our jobs, are no less important, no less vital to our Christian witness than church work. At that point in church history, it was largely thought that in order for work to please God, it had to be of a spiritual nature, preferably done in the monastery or sanctuary, and only certain jobs were of any heavenly value. The Reformers concluded, biblically, that all things could and should be done to the glory of God, whether eating and drinking, marriage, which was another big shift in thinking, and working. Christ is Lord over all of our tasks. God is as concerned with our attitude during a tough Monday morning on the job as he is while we're singing a hymn to him the day before. He wants you doing both in humble submission to him with a sincere heart. You younger boys, did you know that God is, is glorified just as much when you help your mom clean up around the house with a good attitude as, as when you help with chairs or clean up hymnals in church? Those jobs are all good and manly things to do. We can do all of our work as unto God for the glory of Christ. And if we do, none of it will be in vain. So be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, bringing every thought, word, and deed into submission to him. Another practical side to steadfastness is simply that of being reliable, being trustworthy. We ought to be men who can be counted on. We ought to show up on time and do what we say we will. Let our yes be yes and our no be no. When we promise something to our wives or children, they should be able to rely on that happening. A lot of this life is just a matter of routine. You know, the alarm goes off and the day begins and responsibilities take over. And we just need to keep consistently showing up. So be that steady presence at the breakfast table, during family worship, and at bedtime. However you have your home routine worked out, be reliable and be consistent. Our goal is to be as steadfast as the Lord is, whose steadfast love endures forever. Now just a point of clarification. What I do not mean by steadfast and immovable is stubborn. It is okay to be set in our ways if they are God's ways. But let's be honest, a great many things that we do in this life are not primary matters of Christian doctrine. We do not need to be immovable in every area of life. We still need to consider our wives' opinions. God has given her as our helper. We still need to be sensitive to our children's specific needs and limitations when we make family decisions. The idea of steadfastness is one of stability and dependability, not closed-mindedness or pig-headedness. And we should be willing to seek out and listen to wise counsel in order to learn and mature in godliness to be who our families need us to be. All right, point three. Act like men. Act like men. As I said in my introduction, there is no shortage of competing voices in the world telling us who we are and who we should be. Telling men what it means to be masculine. Labeling biblical masculinity as toxic. Saying that any show of manliness needs to be done away with. It's like we're supposed to be these non-threatening, weak-voiced, weak-willed people who exist just to, you know, empower women. Unless, of course, we're superheroes, in which case you can take no prisoners and destroy everything and have however many women you want. So clearly we cannot take our cues from the world. We need to go to God's word to see what it is to be a man and to see what godly masculinity looks like. As men, we represent God on earth. We image him to the fallen world. The one true and living God, though a spiritual being, defines himself as distinctly male. Our Heavenly Father is the creator, the producer, and the Bible says he's the begetter of the world. And that word means he's the active participant in the role of creation, of creation, and procreation. Our God is a worker, a producer, having created the world in six days. He works salvation in the midst of the earth, Psalm 74. God the Son is a worker, coming into the world, faithfully completing every task assigned to him by the Father, pouring out his blood, sweat, and tears during his human life. Christ continues to work by upholding the world by the word of his power. God the Spirit is a worker, first of all as an agent in the creation account, moving about the waters. He also works as an agent of regeneration, bringing us to spiritual life, granting us hearts of flesh, and then working sanctification in us. He renovates us, so to speak, producing spiritual fruit in us as we grow in Christ. Men, we were made to be productive, to build. In the beginning, God took the first man, Adam, and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. On the job training. And that mandate continues. We are made to design, to create, to produce. And when we do, we represent our maker. When we bleed, sweat, and sometimes cry over our tasks on earth, we can do so knowing that it has a purpose. And that purpose is ultimately to glorify God. And we should desire to do our earthly work well, to be experts at what we do. God skillfully created the world down to the finest detail So we need to be the best machine operator, cabinet maker, or accountant that we can be. Whatever job it is that God providentially has you doing, do it with all of your might. Work hard at it. Get better at it. Proverbs 22 verse 29 says, Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Men, it is good to be spoken highly of for the quality of work that we do. It reflects well on our Lord, who does all things well. It is good to work your way into positions of leadership, positions of influence. Not for our own pride's sake, but that there would be more godly wisdom and morality in the workplace. When men lead and rule with godly understanding and knowledge, stability will follow. That's Proverbs 28, verse 2. When the righteous increase, people will rejoice. That's Proverbs 29, verse 2. So it is good to seek positions of influence and authority, again, keeping a balanced work and home life. And it is good to be well compensated for the work that we do so that we can provide for those who have need, starting, of course, with those in our own households. God is a provider for all of his creation. Consider just for a moment how ecosystems work. You know, predators and prey, seasons and weather patterns, the water cycle photosynthesis, plants turning carbon dioxide into oxygen so that we can breathe. It is, it's truly amazing all the ways that God provides for us. He gives us plants and animals to eat. He clothes us, provides shelter for us. He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. God is good to all, but he is good especially to his own. He cares for his own household, his redeemed sons and daughters uniquely, as a loving, compassionate Father. As his children, we receive not only physical blessings from him, but spiritual. In Matthew 7, Jesus says to his followers, Which one of you earthly fathers, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, who are earthly, know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God knows how to provide for his own. Men, we too are expected to provide for our families. We are to be the primary providers of our families. Paul warns us in 1 Timothy that if a man does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. He has refused to image God in a fundamental way, as provider. So men, give your families the best that you have, the best of your time, the best of your efforts. Within your means, provide well for your family. Build something for them that will bless future generations. Proverbs 33, sorry, Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And this provision for our families of course goes beyond the physical. It goes to the emotional and the spiritual as well. We are to lead and teach our wives and children diligently, feeding and nourishing them with the word of God. We are to discipline and chain and train our children patiently, the way that our Lord lovingly disciplines us, in a way that does not provoke them to anger or discourage them. In the spiritual household of God, There is no wrath remaining on his children, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And we must raise our children in that same sort of environment where grace abounds, teaching faithfully and then trusting in the Holy Spirit to bring about repentance and maturity. In this way, we can leave them a godly heritage, a treasure that moth and rust cannot destroy. Of course, I've made all these references now to wives and children and marriage, And this speaks to another characteristic of masculinity, the ability to produce, to procreate. Nowhere in this world are gender distinctions more obvious than in the marriage bed and in the creation of human life. For all the feminism in the world, scientists have not yet been able to synthesize the creation of a child without the unique contribution that only a male can produce. In marriage, there is a particular weight of glory, a divine happiness That occurs in the intimacy between husband and wife that cannot be found anywhere else. And if this all sounds mysterious, especially to you kids out there, that's because it is. It's very mysterious. Even the Apostle Paul thought it was. He calls marriage a profound mystery, but one that was created to represent Christ and the church. Marriage between a man and a woman is the only expression for sexuality that God has ordained. It's the only one that he authorizes and blesses. Through marriage, we are able to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. The family unit, husband, wife, and children, is the means by which we exercise God-ordered dominion in the world. And we ought to desire this. It is not a vain thing to have a quiver full of arrows or a minivan full with the goal of making disciples of Christ. It's so encouraging to look out over our congregation and see all of these uh, young, growing families, and we just hear more and more of it every time we talk to them, that there's another child on the way, and that's such a blessing. But that said, just a word to those men among us who, for whatever reason, are not able to have children. Perhaps it's due to, I'll I'll call it involuntary singleness. Um, Maybe it's due to medical reasons of some kind. You are not less of a man because you cannot have children. God is sovereign over your situation. You will not be judged for something you cannot control. But with that, I will say two things. To those men who are single, make marriage a priority. Prepare yourself for it. Work hard. Save some money. Grow in maturity. And be watchful. Be on the lookout for a godly woman. And church can be a great place to find one. There are very few situations, very few ministries, where a man would be better off single. Marriage is a grace of life through which there are many blessings. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Point number two, until such a time as you are married or have children, put your masculinity to work caring for other people. Help your siblings, help your parents, help your grandparents. If you are married and can't have children, you can adopt, you can foster, you can help mentor some young people in the church. It could be that God has you childless because someone else is fatherless. So get busy serving God with your abilities in whatever situation he has you. All right, point number four. Be strong. Be courageous. Be valiant. Look around the room, and generally speaking, God has made men bigger and stronger than women. Scientifically, we have deeper voices, we have more muscle mass, We're on average taller than women. In most cases, our wives and children literally have to look up to us. And so it is no surprise then that God has commanded men to be the protector of the home. In Genesis, Adam was tasked with working and keeping the garden, to maintain it and to guard it. And once Eve came along, his responsibility to protect extended to her as well. We know how that went. Adam failed to be watchful, he failed to stand firm, and he failed to fulfill his mandate to lead and protect, and our fallen world is a result of that failure. But Christ has redeemed the world. Our work is now blessed through him. Our marriages exist to reflect him. Our strength, our courage, our bravery has also been redeemed and is for the purpose of imaging God and exalting Christ. Now, when we read words like valor or courage, I think we're all kind of stuck using our imaginations as to what that looks like. Um, You know, not many of us have lived through wartime or, you know, a high degree of strife. So we can't really identify with Gideon's men who had to, uh, you know, keep one hand on their sword while they lapped water out of the river. And as much as, uh, you know, I, I imagine we'd like to identify with Samson bringing the house down on the Philistines, my guess is that most of us feel a little less than heroic most of the time. But men, we are strong, and our strength is God-given. Our manliness is to be developed, it's to be celebrated, it's to be expressed. Men ought to be visibly and obviously different than women. Our clothing should be different. Our hair should be different. The way we walk and talk should be different. I'm not going to stand here and give you a bunch of do's and don'ts, or specific hair lengths or clothing colors. I think we all know when clothing and hair borders on feminine. But one obvious way that we can display masculinity is through facial hair. And I know we have several beard advocates among us here. Scripture speaks highly of beards on men. Our Lord and Savior, being a Jew by birth, Jesus, is understood to have worn a beard. Uh, The Reformers, in response to uh, clean-shaven, celibate Catholic priests, they defiantly got married, and then they wore beards. And uh, you know, Charles Spurgeon, one of our favorite uh, you know preachers and commentators, he famously told his students that growing a beard is a habit most natural, scriptural, manly, and beneficial. So I would agree with him that well-kept facial hair is an excellent way to demonstrate masculinity and maturity. Beards differentiate males from females and men from boys. And I say all of this as I don't wear a beard. That said, a beard is of little value if it isn't accompanied by actual manly maturity. There are plenty of lazy, video game-obsessed, porn-addicted boys living in their parents' basements who have beards. What matters most is not the show of masculinity, but substance. In the same way, massive arms and hulking shoulders are of little benefit if they're not being used to provide and protect your family. There's nothing wrong with working out to stay fit and healthy. In 1 Timothy, Paul tells us that bodily training is of some value. It's good to have a bit of muscle tone as a man to not appear soft and feminine. But again, we can slip into imbalance where it becomes about vanity instead of function. God has given us strength for his glory, not our own. Our hope ought not be in our own physical strength or fitness, which is fleeting. Our main concern ought to be training in godliness which Paul says holds promise for this life and the one to come. So I could go on about other manly pursuits like, uh, you know, weapons or sports, whiskey and cigars, expertise in meat preparation, and I look at Macron when I say that. These are areas of Christian liberty, and I think there is room for some of those things in our lives, but these are not the main ways that we ought to be expressing our masculinity and using our strength. Our strength has been given to us by God in order to lead and protect those weaker than ourselves. And husbands, that would be primarily our wives and children. Our wives are the weaker vessels. They may not admit it, but they look to us for security and for safety. They want to know that we're going to be there for them to provide and to protect. That we will not bail when trials come. And I'm not, of course, only talking about physical strength. I'm talking about emotional and spiritual perseverance. I'm talking about being strong enough to withstand attacks from outside the marriage and weaknesses within it. In any given marriage, both spouses are sinners. But men, it's our job to lead by setting the tone in terms of grace and patience. We need to be the example We need to be strong enough to forgive first, and to overlook an offence. We need to live with our wives in an understanding way, even when we don't understand her completely. We need to grant her dignity when she hasn't been dignified, to honour her even if she hasn't been entirely honourable. We need to demonstrate godly, controlled strength in our homes, not only for our wives, but for our children. Show your sons what it means to work diligently. To protect vigilantly and lead consistently as unto the Lord. Teach them not to run from their problems and to keep commitments. Teach them to control their tempers. Teach them to be hardworking and responsible, not lazy and entitled. Teach them to use their strength to serve and lead their family and the church. Teach them to honor sorry, teach them to defend the honor of their mothers and sisters. Dads, we can use our strength to model for our daughters, if we have any, what a godly man should look like. And we can give her a blueprint for a future husband. Husband is very powerful, a very important job, a very daunting task. And this calling requires a lot more than a beard and some bicep curls. It requires a daily commitment to serve Christ, to be rooted and built up in him. And I can't stress this enough. Be strong in the Lord. Take your families to church. What a controversial, radical thing to do these days. Just go to church. Men, show up on time. Open your Bibles. Follow along to the sermon. Sing heartily to the Lord. Discuss the service with your family at home. Discuss the sermon. Give to the church. Serve in the church. Find some way to get involved. The church makes strong men, and strong men make a strong church. And then use your God-given strength to lead, serve, and protect your family the way Christ leads, serves, and protects the church. Christ lives always to intercede for us, keeping us and guarding us until the day of his return. And that leads me to our final point for this morning, verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. Our motivation for all we do as Christ's people is love. First of all, love for God. The greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your hearts and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. From this love flows obedience to all the other commandments and love for one another. We can be as strong as we want, but if it's not motivated by love, if it's not tempered with love, we're going to break things instead of building them up. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 which is the go-to passage about marriage, says, and I'll paraphrase, "'Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church "'and gave himself up for her, "'to cleanse her with the word, "'to present her holy and blameless, "'to nourish her, to cherish her, "'to be united to her as one flesh. "'This is tender, loving care. "'This is not just leading, it's listening.'" This is not just, not a picture of some kind of stoic, detached ruler overseeing his household. This is a hands-on, heart-engaged ministry. If you find that your affections for your wife and your children are lacking, pray to God that he would increase your love for her and for them. Ask him to show you your blind spots and the ways that you can serve your family better. Husbands, our marriages demonstrate the gospel to our wives and to our kids and to our neighbors. When our children see us honoring their mother, it speaks volumes. When you hold your wife's hand or you put your arm around her, you're showing to her and to the world that she is yours and that you are hers, that you are united. When you listen to her, when you put yourself aside to serve her needs, you are demonstrating Christ. Men, what greater motivation could we possibly have than to picture our Savior in his compassionate, loving care of us? He cherishes us. He nourishes us with his own body and blood. He laid himself down, taking our punishment, taking God's wrath upon himself, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Fathers, what greater motivation could we have than our Heavenly Father, who patiently leads and provides for his children? His steadfast love never changes. In Christ, his mercies never come to an end. His divine, his divine power has granted to us, as his children, all things pertaining to life and godliness. It is his kindness, his forbearance, his patience that leads us to repentance. It is his benevolence, his generosity, that has stored up an inheritance for us, one in heaven that is imperishable and unfading. Men, What greater motivation could we have to stand firm, to be watchful, and to be strong? Our great God is unchangeable, unchanging. He looks upon our efforts as men through Christ, and he receives our imperfect work as a fragrant offering because of Christ's perfect work on our behalf. Let us commit our entire beings, our masculinity, our eyes, our affections, our heart, soul, mind, and strength to God. Let's faithfully image him to the world through our work and our marriages and our parenting. May all we do redound to him, to the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we've been able to spend in your word today. We thank you that you haven't left us without instruction that you have given us as your people everything we need in order to obey you and live, in, live out our callings as men and women. It is a daunting task to represent you in this world. None of us here can claim to be doing it perfectly, but we thank you for your patience with us, for continuing to work in your people, growing us in maturity. We thank you for leading us by your spirit, that your grace, your grace is sufficient for the work that you have for us to do. Lord, may this church be be filled with strong, steadfast, loving men. May you use us to grow your kingdom through our marriages, through our families, through our faithful stewardship of all that you give us. May we work hard and build with confidence, knowing that you will complete your work in us at the day of Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.